Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Every Thursday, we're here at the Commonwealth Club for the beautiful view. That's just about it. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're here with John Zipper, our co-host, but we're here to do the, the daily show on Thursdays. We just get to be here at the Commonwealth Club, who's been amazing at this partnership in including LGBTQI thought leaders, but... Uh, also leaders who can have a discussion with an intersectional approach to social justice issues. And that's why we're doing this program. So our special guest today, as we had announced earlier in the month, October is going to focus on immigration issues. Um, I had met this person at a conference who had shared just really insightful experiences of what they do and uh, decided that this was, this person is a true leader in the resistance movement as well as uh, immigration issues. And so Artie Coley is here with us today, who's the executive director of Americans Advancing Justice, the Asian Law Caucus. So Artie, do the honors, you know the drill. You know, before we get into the discussion, Hi. we've got to get to know you. Thanks, Michelle, for having me. It's a true honor um, and uh, I am the executive director of, and we just normally just say Asian Law Caucus, to keep it simple. Um, and my story is, it's not just my story, it's actually like the story of many people and of my family. And one of the reasons I do social justice work is that my parents were born in what is now Pakistan. They were Hindus. And um, when they were very young, in 1947, the colonial government decided to split India into Pakistan and India. And basically, if you were Hindu, you were moved, you were forced to move out, out of Pakistan. And, um, and if you're Muslim, a lot of Muslims left India. And it was one of the most horrific mass migrations that has happened in the world. Um, many people died you know, women were raped, all kinds of stuff happened. And to my family, like many Muslim families, you know, lost everything and were displaced. And when they moved to India, they actually survived because my grandmother had a lot of jewelry she received. Um, and, and if you've ever been to an Indian wedding, you might have seen that there's often a lot of gold. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the purpose for that is insurance. And it was actually, she sold every piece of jewelry that she had over a period of years to support the family. Mm. And that's really what, you know, uh, unfortunately, in, it's sometimes meant for. Um, and so uh, I grew up on that story of starting, with, starting fresh, starting with nothing and, um, and persevering. And I knew that when we came here and with my parents to America, they also had nothing. And I saw them do that struggle that I wanted to make sure that other folks, particularly immigrants who were struggling, had support. Now, you also um, wanted to talk about the formation of the organization Asian Law Caucus. Yeah. Uh, let's also, you know. Yeah, that's a great story. It's um, so it's 1972 and the San Francisco police decide we are going to go after gangs and we're going to go after gangs in Chinatown. So they start doing sweeps, just going up and down the streets, arresting any young men who were gathered on the streets without you know, any suspicion that they had done illegal activity. So the parents who were uh, recent immigrants, limited English speakers were like, they found the one Asian lawyer they could and they were like, we, you know, how do we get our kids out of jail? We don't even know what's going on. Why is this happening? And he went to a group of students at Berkeley Law and folks came together and said, you know what? We've got to help these folks. And the students who were um, young Asian American lawyers were actually, they had their own story. They were the children of um, people who had been interned in Japanese internment. So, you know, they knew what the cost was when you don't have legal representation. So our first case was um, suing the San Francisco Police Department for these discriminatory raids. 
and um, we won. And actually, when we were doing discovery, you know, they said things like, well, you, we can't tell them apart, so we just arrest them all. I mean, they literally admitted to the racial discrimination that they were engaging in. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. John? I would assume over the years, obviously, there's been a lot to expand on and, and cover. Yeah. What, what are the mainstay cases that you're dealing with these days? Yeah, so it's, as you know, um, for immigrant communities, it's a really tough time. And there are multiple ways this administration is going after folks. So one of our, um, the, the big issues we're dealing with right now are, are the family separations in Southeast Asian communities. So I think you may know that um, we had a lot of Southeast Asian refugees come here in um, uh, the 70s, 80s, um, you know, p after the wars that we, you know, had a role in, in Cambodia and in Vietnam, um, we actually took um, thousands of folks. So these folks are now, these same folks who came as refugees are f now facing deportation. So we have a client, um, Boren Rai. He uh, was born in a Thai refugee camp. And he came from the, at the age of two and uh, with his family into very typical, like poverty-stricken, rough neighborhoods, you know, neighborhoods with lots of gangs. And um, like many of his peers, um, he made mistakes. So when he was 20, he was um, convicted of stealing a radio. Um, he stole a radio from a house for his little brother. And... Um, he went to prison and he basically, you know, decided I'm going to turn my life around. You know, I don't want to go back to jail. I'm going to, you know, I want, I want to um, have the opportunity to thrive. So he came out, he got married. Um, last year, uh, when the government started targeting uh, Cambodians, they picked him up. He was about to start coaching his son's soccer game. And, and they placed him in immigration detention. So the issue for Cambodians, and actually also we have a separate case, similar case for Vietnamese immigrants, is that if you have a criminal conviction, and it's a range of them, it could be a very low level one, or even serious ones, you are basically deportable. But um, you should have an opportunity to show that um, you uh, could stay. And so what we've done is we've, we've filed two different class actions, one for the Cambodians, one for the Vietnamese. And basically um, both of them say that ICE can't just pick you up and put you on a plane mm -hmm. or in immigration detention because the further complicating factor of this is that Cambodia and Vietnam are not willing to take folks. And so what you have is people sometimes just rotting, sitting in immigration detention. So like for Boren, he was in detention for four months. They lost their apartment because he wasn't, you know, making any money. His wife and kids had to move in with other relatives. I mean, this is a really typical story of what happens. So what we've been able to show, um, and really it's been great, is that a lot of our clients, we've gotten them out of detention. And we've been able to reopen their immigration cases. Um, and so we can, they have an avenue of potentially staying in the country. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, another piece of this is that for some folks is that we're trying to get pardons. Because if you can get a pardon for the criminal conviction. That wipes it out. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, you know, much more likely that they won't get deported. So right now, um, if you go to the Asian Law Caucus's Facebook page, there's a pardon petition. And we have a petition in front of Jerry Brown for uh, many of our clients. Um, and he's been very good about doing pardons. He's pardoned right. some of our clients already. Let's go back to you know this, this policy in which you are deportable if uh, you have any, you know, yeah. convictions. Uh, and you mentioned it can be a low-level crime to, you know, it stretches beyond that. Yeah. I mean, this policy has been implemented prior to this administration. Right. Yeah. So, so this passed in 1996. This mm -hmm. law it was Newt Gingrich's law. 
if you remember him. Um, and, uh, and Bill Clinton signed it because the threat at that time was, if you don't sign this law, we're going to get rid of birthright citizenship. So that's what the Republicans, that was what they were holding over uh, Bill Clinton. So he, you know, his political calculation was okay. And, you know, it was a thousand page bill that most of the legislators hadn't seen. So it wasn't until after it was became law that people realized all the crazy stuff that was in there, including this um, provision, which gave, you know, be required mandatory detention and all this stuff. Now, the thing is, how do administrations actually implement the law is the question. So previous administrations um, didn't, uh, didn't, you, they had I, uh, Cambodians and Vietnamese, anybody who was in this category check in with ICE, but they didn't, um, put them in immigration detention for indefinite deportation, uh, detention. Mm -hmm. um, and so because they knew that they, that Cambodia and Vietnam wasn't going to take these folks back. But what the Trump administration is doing is trying to force Cambodia and Vietnam to take these folks. And, and actually in our Vietnamese case, they just admitted that it's really unlikely that that's going to happen. And that they're just arresting people to um, leave them in detention. So that's the part that, you know, I, I'd love to highlight is getting folks in detention in which we're finding through uh, so many of these great uh, organizations yeah. who are part of the resistance movement. Are, uh, we obviously now as regular citizens who may not have known this, but private or detention centers, you know, they make a lot of money. Yeah. So, I mean, from the legal perspective, when you're representing these cases, I, I mean, do judges understand this, that you can't just yeah, I mean, put people yeah. in jail because it makes money? Right, well, it's... Or not jail, but, but detain them. It's prison. prison. It's an immigration yeah. prison. Yeah. It's totally, you're right on that. And it's a $6 billion, I mean, we spend $6 billion every, ICE gets $6 billion every year. I mean, just imagine what we could do. That's our taxpayer dollars. And, and at any given moment, there are about thirty to 50,000 people sitting in detention. So I think judges understand it, but judges also, it's interesting what judges are doing these days because they are, you see many of them stretching, you know, and trying to, and actually, um, you know, we have even Republic appointee judges who are like, this is not acceptable, mm -hmm. you know? And can I interrupt? When we're talking about judges and immigration, there are, of course, the judges within the immigration system. Right. We're part of the administration. Right. And there are the judges outside. Is there a difference between the two in their likelihood, for example, to try to stretch things I, and accommodate Yes, reality. I think so. I think federal district court judges have a lot more power, yeah. right? They're not subject to the Department of Justice like administrative law judges, which are what you're talking about. That's yeah. what an immigration judge is. So are there more cases that are going through hearing after hearing within the immigration system? The judges there keep saying no. So then more of this stuff is getting kicked over into the... Yeah, or, or like cases like ours, which are class actions. Okay. So like the Cambodian cases will impact up to about 2,000 Cambodians and the Vietnamese case, 10,000. Wow. Yeah, so it's a lot. Um, many, many people. And so th those cases are normally filed in federal district court. Okay. And, and the reason we do that, and that is part of our model, is... We do direct legal service. So that's how we found out, find out, hey, this is what's happening in the community. When these raids started with Cambodian communities, like people started calling us from all over the country because they knew that we do these, this work. And, but rather than trying to you know, help you know, 25 different people in different areas, we felt like, okay, this is big enough. We need to file a class action. And so we take what we're learning from communities on the ground and use that for our impact work. It's really scary. I mean, you know, you were talking about an example of, of an individual um, who you paint is a neighbor of mine. My, my parents were refugees from Laos. Yeah. And when we oh, came wow. here, yeah, well, you know, I grew up in Stockton, California. Right. Um, lived in poverty. I mean, there weren't very many resources. Our parents didn't speak right. English and they right. kind of just threw us, you know, and said, you have to go to school. You got to get, 
get good grades. Meanwhile, um, our parents are so poor and then, you know, we yeah. hit, uh, uh, 12, 13 years old. And the impression is we have to figure out a way to help to put food on the table. Right. I mean, I, I just want to go back into talking about, um, the, the issues and not have people just think about stealing the radio. Right. That you, you shouldn't have stole, you know, why'd you steal the radio? Like yeah. you shouldn't have done that. You were a criminal. You're a criminal. You were yeah. convicted of this crime and, right. and people really understanding what the experience was for many of us you know, right. who are growing up in this way. The pressures, the trauma, the yeah. violence that you're exposed to. Yeah, I mean, coming from violence into communities that had it. Yeah. And that is, you know, that is, um, and we work very closely with a lot of Southeast Asian um, uh, support groups as well, because we do feel like actually the most powerful thing is for people, like your story is very powerful, is for people to tell their own story, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that is, and, and also we as a country are so bent on criminalizing everyone. I mean, that's just like the American way. And we have a huge mass incarceration crisis. It has even more dire consequences for immigrants, right? Um, and you're exiled to a place that's never been home. Your home is here. And I think you know, this is this should be a part of not just the immigration conversation, but also the criminal justice conversation. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, there was something that I had asked you before we started the program, and, and you just mentioned it right now. Um, I don't want it to kind of just focus mm -hmm. on the, the negative so much as a lot of your work is uh, also positive. There's right. some wins that, oh, yeah. that we yeah. have. Like you mentioned Governor Joe right. Brown and, and kind of the pardoning right. um, strategy. If you could elaborate on that. If, sure. if, is this something that could be you know replicated throughout the entire uh, fight for you know, immigrant rights. Uh, we think so. We think, I mean, we, so we did pass a bill this, uh, we helped pass a bill this um, past year, which improves the pardon panel process because there's a panel that's um, sort of, you know, helps decide whether you can get a pardon. And we do feel like um, California could do even better in creating the ability to have more pardons. And other states could do this too. You know, it doesn't, you know, these are so, I know that it feels hopeless for a lot of people when they look at what the federal administration is doing, but we have a lot of power in California. And we have, um, as a community of immigrants rights folks, have, I think, really tried very hard to leverage that power. Um, so we're hopeful that the next governor um, will also you know, so, so be supportive of immigrants. And I mean, I think Jerry Brown, it's interesting because you may know this, he's a Jesuit seminary, former seminarian. And so he really believes in redemption. And I think that's why he's been willing to pardon people, even people with serious criminal convictions. Mm. And, um, and I think I, even my own journey on these issues and meeting people, I mean, amazing people who really shouldn't be defined by the worst thing they, that they did um, has been one of really um, embracing that we as a country should be should uh, have criminal justice system that that actually supports rehabilitation and redemption. It seems right now we're caught up and not caught up. We're enduring. Um, another flare up of not just the on again, off again, American kind of hatred of immigrants out of a country of immigrants. Yeah. But uh, even within that, it's like a spike in, in this with the whole caravan issue and right. sending troops to the border now. Yeah. Um, does that, it would sound dumb to say, does that make your, your job harder? Yeah. But also by so much focus being on that and so many people being right. on, you know, concerned about it does that in any way help you uh you know people coming out to show support or provide money for nonprofit groups i mean is there any um silver lining of, of this kind of awfulness that we're going through right now yeah i mean i think it is really um great when people do people have stepped up and um we're definitely not one of those organizations that's now getting millions more or anything like that like yeah. the aclu 
um, or some other organizations, but we definitely have seen an increase in support. And we've also, it's also the emotional support, I think, for our staff. I mean, if you think about, you know, the folks who are out in the communities, the attorneys, I mean, we also have community advocates in addition to attorneys. And it's, you have vicarious trauma, you know, you're, you're watching people be separated, you're, you know, doing know your rights on the Muslim ban and listening to the stories of families or, um, or, you know, doing know your rights on sanctuary, all these things. And so I think all of us feel that it, we're very fortunate to be in California. We're very fortunate to be in San Francisco. You know, there's many, I, you know, I think of, we have partners in Georgia, right? I think of them. They're constantly getting hate. And that's even a harder job, you know, and or isolated communities, you know, if you're in, in Utah or Kansas or, you know, and um, I think it's even harder there. You mentioned, um, I want to go back to something you mentioned just now. You mm -hmm. talked about, um, you know, the executive order that started back right. in January 2017. That was one of the first thing this president did. Right. Was, to go after the immigrant community. And so going back to that very first executive order of banning travelers from that yeah. know, seven countries. Right. And then we see the legal community fight back. Right. And yeah, we were at the, the president, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Where are we at now? And how sure. has that um, policy, how has that impacted our, our communities from those seven countries? And right. for, for many of us who are, you know, just tuning into the tube or everyday people, right. I don't think we understand like what that means. Like, unless you yeah. know someone who has been directly right. affected. Yeah. So the seven countries are Somalia, Syria, Iran, Libya, Yemen. And then you have some people from North Korea and Venezuela who are also impacted. But um, the Muslim majority countries are where the big, you know, impacts have been. So, uh, as you may remember, um, the Supreme Court uh, allowed the third version of the ban to stay in place. So it's been literally, it's um, that third version of the ban uh, went into uh, effect December of 2017. So it's been almost a year. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and after, you know, it was, I was there at the oral argument of the Muslim ban case and, um, it was really crazy to hear the solicitor general say, um, I think it was Justice Breyer asked, well, how is the waiver working? Cause there's this idea that you're, you're banned, but there's a way uh, around the ban. You can get a waiver, which if you show hardship, you can, you should be able to get a visa. So he says, the Solicitor General says, well, we review each case for a waiver. And like all of us who work on these issues in the audience, we're like, what the heck are you talking about? Because no one is getting a waiver. And what review? You know, because there's no process. There's no, it's not like you go on to the government website and there's a form or nothing. There's absolutely not, it's just pure uh, opaqueness. Mm. So we filed a lawsuit in this summer after the Supreme Court decision, basically demanding transparency of the waiver process and demanding a process. If you're going to say you have a process, then you, you need to have one. And so... Um, and, you know, what it's likely going to show what we already know, which is it's a total sham. You know, from what the data we have, only 2% of the people who are eligible for waivers are getting them. I mean, 2%. Right. It might as well not exist. Yep. Um, and so it was so disturbing to hear this in front of the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we... Um, you know, that case has just sort of gotten off the ground and we're hopeful that we can get some accountability and transparency through that litigation. And in the meantime, you have, you know, people I shared on my Twitter today, this story of this young woman in the Bronx who's married to a Yemeni guy and she's, she, they have a little daughter. She must be like a year old or less. And She's never met her, or less actually, if you think about it. Uh, she's probably seven months old. She's never met her dad, who's in Yemen. 
So this woman is considering moving to a war-torn country so that her daughter can be with her dad. I mean, that's her only choice. It just sounds like this... Well, it goes back to what you said before the show. I don't know if I can repeat it or Mm -hmm. you'll allow me to, but just a, a combination of people who are in positions of power who may not actually understand you know, law, forming policies, um, understand how it all works. And then a combo of that with their own maybe personal bias or. um, Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's a combination. Well, there are some people who understand perfectly how it works and they want it to work that way. They want to get rid of all immigrants in this country. They want people to self deport. They don't want people of, you know, and and I would say it's a part of the white supremacist, you know, agenda. So there are some people um, who are now in government and who have lots of power who do this. They are paired with a lot of incompetent, confused people who are now carrying out these policies in um, and or aren't even sure what the policy is. Okay, so good. they don't know how to carry it out. I just needed to hear yeah. it from somebody smarter than me. That no. I'm not going crazy. <laughs> like, this is happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think I was sharing with you that the um, GAO uh, just came out with a report saying on the family separation issue that, you know, when um, the Homeland Security folks decided to have a zero tolerance policy, they'd never, they didn't share that with the Department of Justice. So basically one agency is carrying out a policy, not even telling another agency about it. And um, so, I mean, that's just pure chaos, right? Which is why kids were lost, things were, you know, these horrible things were happening to people. Among the private uh, detention facilities that are being used for the immigration for, for folks. Do we know, are the, are the conditions in there worse or better or the same as yeah. Trump? Yeah, no. So the Geo Group is one of the biggest right. uh, companies and it is a profit-making group. And we know that they have a long history of lobbying both Congress um, and states to, to incarcerate more people. Like that's their business model. Mm. Let's lock up more people. It's pretty insane. Um, and uh, they, you know, even pre-Trump, we they were some. They had some of these contracts, but they were starting to lose some of the contracts okay. because a lot of advocates had stepped up, and you know, people who were, who had been in de- detention talk. I mean, people have died in detention. Right. They have, you know, medical conditions have been ignored. Um, you hear about the ice boxes, you know, it's freezing yep. and all these really just inhumane stories. Right. And by the way, this is supposed to be a civil system. It's not supposed to be a criminal system. Violating immigration law is a civil violation. Like it's like a tax violation. So, but we're, you know, treating people, not that we should treat criminals, people who are accused of crime this way either, but, you know, it's, it's just um, pretty amazing that we call this a civil system. Is there any way to sue the GEO group um, for, I mean, I'm sure of it that there are lots yeah, of there lawsuits. Yeah, are, there are. There are lawsuits, um, but, you know, um, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to sue the government as well. They're, they have a lot of um, protections um, in the in in the laws. Um, but you know, we do it all the time. <laughs> say, says the woman who's suing the government. I currently. mean, it's like right. That's, we're in the business <laughs> yeah. of suing the government. We've sued every you know agency, I think. Um, and so that's you know that's our job. Yeah. You know, and we have to like. I mean, that's the promise of America, right? Like, that's why immigrants come here, because we're told that this is a country where you can get access to justice. You can hold people in power accountable. And it's it's a scary time because, you know, we, I think some of us are despairing, you know, can we hold people in power accountable? But I think we ha- we absolutely have to, we have to try. I think it was our last immigration lawyers we had as guests on the show, one, they were talking about how the protections that the inmates, deten- detainees, whatever the term is, mm-hmm. uh, in these immigration camps, 
um, are less than if they had committed a crime and were in the 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 federal yeah yeah. and they could not get information out of them they they, they, as the lawyers had had more restrictions on what they could do what they could say and everything than if they were dealing in a regular actual criminal uh, justice system yeah it's true I mean it's the um, you know DHS Department of Homeland Security um, likes to make up their own rules as they go along ICE and the GEO group they had their own you know um, I think they're they're not viewing uh, their job as as allowing any um, access to the immigrants, yeah. um, which is you know that's in violation of our laws. It's like everybody now. The thing is, if you're an immigrant, and I think people may not understand this, is like you don't get a lawyer. Like if you're if you're a criminal defendant and you can't afford a lawyer, you get a lawyer. Mm-hmm. If you're facing deportation, the government doesn't give you a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But you have the right, if you have one, for the lawyer to come talk to you and see you. And so that's, you know, and often the other thing they do is they move our clients far away. I was just going to say, sometimes a lawyer can't yeah. reach them. Yeah, and so then it's really hard to represent people, which is why one of the things we try really hard to do with our clients is get them out of detention. It's much easier to fight your case when you're out of detention. Well, we do open uh, a moment of the show for questions from our audience. And we have a lot of Artie fans here (laughs) today. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here. Um, And so if you've got a question for Artie, speaking to the mic, it is a part of the program. Anybody? Questions? Okay, we'll let you think about it, and we'll <laughs> come back. Um, but, you know, Artie, I mean, uh, obviously this is personal. Right. Personal for me in a lot of ways, and although I'm not uh, somebody that's been detained or necessarily impacted yeah. in this way within the Southeast Asian community, I mean, like I said, those are, those are my neighbors, those are my friends, right. uh, regardless of whatever it is that we had to do to live. Uh, again, like I really want to... Um, highlight the fact that growing up as a Southeast Asian person during the time after the 70s when our parents um, came here, uh, they didn't have the resources themselves and they're trying their best to to take care of us. And so these crimes that I put in in quotes, um, I think people really need to understand that they're not just crimes that the Southeast Asian community uh, committed because they're bad people, that, that if you right. look at the percentage of um, crimes that, crime, I, I, hate, I don't want to use that word, yeah. but okay. incidents, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. And, 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 uh, and, and look at it from, you know, right, like people who are growing up, people yeah. who live in, in poverty and, right. and compare that to uh, people who are born here. I don't think that the, st- the, the statistics are that different. No. And I think, I mean, it really is about our values as a country, you know, um, and we should, um, I mean, we don't believe, and I think, you know, this may be part of um, this whole idea of abolishing ICE, right? What are you, like, we don't believe that people should be locked up in detention. Mm-hmm. There are lots of ways to handle this situation and to create an immigration system that works, but that isn't punitive. And I think that, you know, these values are what led us to, for example, um, help pass the sanctuary laws in um, California. So the California Values Act. And you, I think you know that Sessions, Jeff Sessions, is suing the state of California. Oh, yeah. We forgot to so, ask you about that. Yeah. So, <laughs> fun times. Yeah. Never, never a dull moment. Yeah. Um, you know, he did a big song and dance, came here and said, we're going to sue California. And... Um, it was on our um, state, uh, which some people call sanctuary bill. And sanctuary, sanctuary laws are really just about keeping families together and keeping neighborhoods safe. So, um, for example, uh, we have a client, Pedro Figueroa. So he, I don't know if you heard his story, but um, he's a landscaper in San Francisco, lived here a long time. And he had his car stolen. So he uh, reported it to the police and uh, 
they called him and they said, they, we found your car, come, come fill out the paperwork. So he and his wife and small daughter went to the police station and they were really excited, you know, to get the car back. So they check his ID and um, apparently ran an immigration check and asked him to go sit in a room by himself. And, you know, the family started getting nervous, like, what's going on here? Um, his wife ran home to get a translator. She didn't know what, you know, what the police were saying. They usher him out the door, a side, they're like, oh, okay, well, you can get your car over here. They usher him out a side door right into the hands of an ICE van, oh. an ICE agent waiting with a van who in front of his daughter handcuffs him and shoves him in the van. And meanwhile, the daughter is screaming, Poppy, Poppy, I don't want them to take you away. So here he is, a victim of crime, reporting the crime and, you know, getting, just trying to get his car back and he's in the hands of ICE. And we have a sanctuary policy. This was in total violation of our sanctuary policy and the city of San Francisco admitted it. Mm -hmm. They said, okay, you know, you're right. We shouldn't have done that. We're not going to do that again. And um, we fortunately were able to, with a lot of advocacy and working with a huge coalition of organizations, were able to get um, Pedro out of immigration detention. But um, it could have gone really wrong for him. He could have been, you know, deported in a matter of days because of, you know, local police turning people over to ICE. And so, you know, the idea around these policies is that the job of local police is not to be immigration agents. That's not their job. And we can, you know, have, I think, a long conversation about the role of, you know, how local police does their job and all the problems there. But in an ideal world, they're there to protect and support communities, right? And if, if people think, oh, I, if they're a victim of a crime or a witness to a crime, they're not going to go to the local police if they think they're going to be sent to ICE. Right, right. Right? And that's bad for all of us. And so, um, you know, what we did with the state sanctuary bill was basically say, California is not going to be, we're not going to use our taxpayer dollars to do the federal government's dirty work. You know, we feel like there's no real pathway to citizenship for folks. There's no line for people to get into. We've got 2 million people in California, at least, who are undocumented. And we're not willing to send them to ICE. We're not willing to use our resources to send them to ICE. Now, this is a great example of how we can create pathways that are healthy and equitable to um, yeah, citizenship, as you, as you had mentioned, and what this... Uh, I think elephant in the room that a lot of the politicians, legislators, and even presidents yeah. have been afraid to touch is immigration reform. Right. Like, it's just been so controversial. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on what it will take to actual reform? Is this, is, I yeah. mean, it's, it's a lot of this and then obviously we need a new administration. Well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and a new Congress. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah, I think vote. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we're C3, so uh, we don't get into, you know, uh, uh, politics that much, though we do do voting rights work. Um, but our, I mean, I think, yes, you, you need a movement. I mean, that's what our job has been is, as community lawyers is to support, support the building of the power of the movement. And I think undocumented youth have been leading the movement. And you need folks to step up and, you know, feel comfortable in telling their own stories and demanding a just process, a fair process, a humane one. Um, and I think one of the perennial problems with all the past proposals that we've had, and there's been tons of comprehensive immigration reform proposals in the past decade, mm -hmm. is that the first place they start is punishment. We must punish you in order to legalize you. You must suffer. And, um, and they make the process completely ridiculous. Like you must, you know, know English, you have to work all the time, you know, all kinds of, you know, restrictions. Um, and I think we have to start at a totally different place. It's like, if you're undocumented in this country, you are paying the price every day. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You know, we have, we know folks, they have, you know, they're often subject to wage theft. They are, you know, they li- they're living in fear, right? Um, you're being, you've been punished, yeah. you know? And the idea is, do we believe in a humane, sus- you know, in each other's humanity? Right. How was it done in the 80s? There was a... Uh yeah, in 1986. Yeah. yeah, under Reagan, actually, exactly. interestingly yeah. enough. Um, back when Republicans yeah. were Yeah, so I, I believe um, they used a registry date. Okay. And so what they did is that basically if you were in the country at a certain cutoff point, mm-hmm. um, then you were able to be legalized. No jumping through hoops, no going to the back of the line, no... N- no, mm-mm. Yeah, it's not, it's, we, we don't have to make it as complicated as people want to make it. Right. Yeah. You, we could use a registry date again. It's not, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing about, you talk about change of administrations, but, and this is why I want to get into uh, another related topic, uh, temporary protected status. Mm-hmm. So groups who receive that under one administration, right. it can be changed, obviously, as we're finding out now. Yeah. So first of all, for any listeners who don't know what that is, because I didn't know what it was until I started hearing about these these being stripped away from people. What is it? How big of a, how many people are affected by this? What is the status of what's going on with that? Sure. So um, there are, I believe it's hundreds of thousands of people, around 300,000 people or so. And temporary protected status is really a status created for people who are here who in their home country, there is either like a natural disaster, um, like Haiti, uh, Honduras, um, like a something that wipes out the economy. Um, and then what it does is say, basically, you can be here um, and work legally. You're in a temporarily legal status. Um, and we will allow you to remain because we know that it doesn't make sense to send you back to a country that's already suffering. Um, and actually the people who have been under TPS status and the thing what's happened is for a lot of countries, it's like one bad thing, one disaster will happen and then another will happen. And so the administrations, you know, the Obama administration renewed TPS. That's the short name for it, um, for many folks Mm -hmm. so they could continue to remain. And, um, it's not an ideal place to be. I think there should be a place, a way for these folks to also adjust their status. Cause what's happened is folks have like, you know, many other people, if you live here long enough, you have children. A lot of folks have, um, U.S. citizen children who are now in school. So are people under TPS not allowed to go towards citizenship? There's no pathway. There's no pathway to adjust from TPS to a permanent status. Right. Yeah. I I think at this point, uh, the only legal pathway is marriage. Uh, Right. I mean, it just feels like that. Yeah. And that also can get complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So there are... um, Many of these folks who are now facing, because the Trump administration said, we're not renewing, we're not renewing any of these, no matter what's happening, and without any actual evaluation of what's happening in those countries, yeah. right? So Judge Ed Chen, who has this case, is actually a former alum of the Asian Law Caucus. Really? <laughs> yeah, um, we have actually a lot of folks who've gone through our doors. Um, uh issued a ruling saying you can't just get rid of it. You have to have a process. Mm-hmm. You have to have some due process. And so he's halted. Um, what the administration was going to do was just start getting, sending people out and he stopped that temporarily. Um, so that's, that's, you know, and it's, it is um, an example of where judges are making a difference. Now, know? did the Trump administration appeal his ruling up to, they said um, they said that they would comply with it right now, um, and I'm sure that um, they will eventually appeal. They've been appealing. Like, for example, we won the Sessions law. We, we filed an amicus brief in the sanctuary uh, lawsuit that I was telling you about, the Sessions lawsuit, and we won at the district court level. And now they've appealed that one to the Ninth Circuit. Okay. And so um, we're getting ready to file another brief in that case. As you're saying all this, I'm envisioning in my 
mind, you know, just kind of what, how the president may have responded when he got the news, you know, from a uh, court decision and, well, there's other things going on right now. I can't deal with this. So fine for right now. <laughs> there's, there are a lot of things that's going through. It is true though. On Tuesday we had uh, Rick Wilson here. Yeah. And he's a Republican strategist. Very definitely never Trump. Uh huh. Um, Interesting. He was talking about you know the types of Republicans. Most Republicans and conservatives refuse to work in the Trump administration. So what they're getting is second and third stringers who do those things like we were supposed to inform this other agency that we're doing something. Right. They don't yeah. know any of those, that thing. So it's, it's, it's the blind leading the blind leading the illiterate blind. Yeah. We'll come back to our audience. If anybody has a burning desire to ask Artie <laughs> a question, no burning desire. Okay. <laughs> As we wind down, there are a couple questions I do want to touch base with you on. And there's the, uh, you know, some media outlets have circulated articles about the, even the attempt to, uh, revoke or take away citizenship status from naturalized yeah. citizens. And so um, you'd be the, f you know, one person that we could ask for some truth and honesty to that. Sure. Yeah. So um, the Trump administration announced the opening of a new office. It's going to be in Los Angeles and they're spending a few million dollars setting it up. So and um, what they're going to start doing is reviewing the cases of people who've been naturalized and looking for fraud. Um, and it's pretty insane. <laughs> so we are waiting and watching. We're really worried, um, that, you know, they'll start trying to going after folks, um, in our communities. Um, I think they're going to be looking for marriage fraud or other, you know, potential. And the thing is, it's, it's, there's no evidence that there is, that this is happening you know, that there's huge amounts of fraud happening. There, there is very, and so this is totally unnecessary. Um, and, but, you know, it's just another in the, the long list of things that they want to do to try and, you know, make immigrants afraid and, um, uh, you know, to basically, I feel like it's like terrorizing immigrants families. You're never in a, you're never, I'm a naturalized citizen. You know, I, I, uh, came here when I was seven years old. You know, I, I got lucky in that my parents naturalized when I was 17. So I automatically through them became a U.S. U.S. citizen. But I've, I've, I've told every single person I know who has a green card, um, as long as, you know, to, 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 Go talk to an immigration lawyer, get it checked out. But if all, everything is good, you need to apply for U.S. citizenship. And now once I heard this announcement, I was like, okay, I don't even know what to say to folks anymore. It's like there is no, you know, there's no real feeling of safety or security anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to really go dark, but I know people overdo the, the Nazi comparisons, but um, that was kind of the similar message that was done there and institutionalized right. there. It was, of course, they hated the Jews. Even if you converted, right. you know, even if your parents had converted and you were never, you know, even if you didn't even realize you were Jewish because it was your great, you were Jewish. And therefore, you always right. had to live either at the sufferance of them or once they really got going. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the dark history of this country, too, because you have like Chicanos, you have people who are born near the border, mm -hmm. who are actually you born U.S. citizens right. who were deported and, you know, who they've at times tried to deport still, you know, people who were born, um, they weren't born in hospitals, like a midwife delivered them so they don't have a certificate. The government will sometimes say, well, you don't have proof that you were born in the United States or you're not a U.S. citizen. There so there's been cases well. of that. Uh, yeah. So we have, I mean, our immigration laws, unfortunately, are part of the racist history of this country. Mm -hmm. And it's really um, galling, you know, when people try and pretend that they're based on something else, <laughs> you know, on, on, on some other sort of, you know, sense of fairness and justice, which has never really been right. the case. Right. Yeah. One question I wanted to, to ask you as we wind down is really just checking in with you as an individual, as a person. Um, 
I mean, you're fighting the government. Right. Um, you just told us you're a naturalized citizen. This personally affects you as well. I mean, uh, as we started this week or uh, 24 hours ago, you know, all these reports of, um, yes, the bombs. And I just kind of wanted to check in with you and how you overcome the fear uh, there's got to be some element of you. You're human that yeah. there's fear in doing this kind of work. Uh, at the same time, we heard you earlier say, you know, this is the this is the job. Yeah, you have to have hope. Yeah, I mean, you you have to have a certain masochistic personality <laughs> to do these jobs. <laughs> I knew there was a little I mean, LGBTQ in you yeah, somewhere yeah, there. <laughs> totally, totally. No, um, you. I mean, I I think back. I have a lot of privilege. You know, I'm a lawyer, I'm, I'm in the Bay Area, I have an amazing group of colleagues who are show up for work every day, you know, even when things are really bad, you know, and um, so I, I go back to those kinds of, you know, positive affirmation thoughts. <laughs> um, but I do think back to, you know, the civil rights movement and people who, like when internment happened, like, you know, how were people, how did people sort of survive these points in our history, these really low, you know, dark points in our history? And if you think about it, it you know, people persevered. You know, and that's that's kind of part of the job. Mm. And you have to and you have to be strong, not just for yourself as a leader. It's really you have to be strong for the community because, you know, you don't have the luxury of falling apart for people like that's in front of people. <laughs> you know, you can go fall apart somewhere in, you know, a corner uh, of your house, but not in front of folks. Oh, you're making me cry because this morning no. I was going to text, email you guys. I don't think I can do this program. I'm just I feeling don't. so, you know, like, what am I doing this all for? Um, and and then more into my personal life, but I'm going through the documentation process. I'm married. Um, wow. uh, my wife is from Thailand and she's, it's been over a year and a half and we've heard nothing, oh. nothing, like no word, not, she doesn't even have the employment authorization document. What crimes has she committed? What is she yeah. trying to destroy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's trying to bring Thai country music here. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Um, and so oftentimes, like, I'm always like, oh, I'm so crazy for, for doing these types of talks because I could be a, a target. I even yeah. talked to our immigration attorney, like, could I get, could they say no, you know, to our application because I have anti-government views right now? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but as you said, right. I mean, it, these are our real lived experiences. And the scary part is the answer. There is no sure answer to, to any of it. And that is part of the reason why we have to keep resisting and keep fighting and keep sharing our stories. Yeah. So that's very powerful, you know, and that's why I actually think the people who take the most risks are our clients. You know, they put their trust in us to come forward. I mean, to challenge the Muslim ban or to challenge us like you're putting a big target on yourself, you know? And so, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there are many more stronger people than me in this fight. And I'm really, really grateful to be um, there with them. For the person listening to this who wants to do something to help both in the short term and like right. helping people who are like you who are on the front lines, as well as the larger thing of trying to actually change policy or whatever. I mean, right. What, what are some things they can do? Sure. Yeah. They can um, go to our, for example, I mentioned our Facebook page or our website. We have like... And the, what's the URL of your website? Um, so you, the easiest one is AsianLawCaucus.org. Okay. You can go there and it'll take you uh, to our website. And then our Facebook page is the same thing. You can Google Asian Law Caucus mm -hmm. and then Facebook. Um, uh, the pardon petition is there. So I think, you know, do that, yeah. do the pardon petition. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, like public charge and all these other things, which I know you've talked about on another, on a uh, Ignatius Bows program. You know, there's a lot of um, notice and comment going on right now where you, you can submit comments to the federal gov government on individual policies that you think are bad. So do that if you're inclined. Um, and then obviously I think if you're eligible to vote, vote, or even if you're not eligible to vote, get the word out to the folks who are, 
Um, I do think looking and voting is, you know, looking not just at your congressional leaders, but looking at your sheriffs, looking at your local, you know, city councils. They have a lot of power to make life either miserable for immigrants or to make it welcoming. Mm. Right. Yeah. So you can do work in your own backyard. And I really encourage people to work with organizations in their even in their own backyard, mm-hmm. you know, um, work with organization. You know, maybe you have a particular skill. Maybe you can do mentor youth. OK, fine. Go find some, you know, immigrant serving organization can do that or um you know, maybe you're an attorney wants to give pro bono hours. There's lots of places to help out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, just two more last questions. The first okay. one is very quick. Okay. Um, do you think it's a good idea to cancel Amazon Prime or your, your Prime account? Yeah. You know, I um, it's I just saw that yesterday. <laughs> what and I'm referring to for those who just walked in or don't know is uh, uh, there's a report that just came out that Amazon did indeed have a formal meeting trying to sell some facial recognition software to the yeah. the, the government in, in order to and, and not just facial recognition in general, but as it applies to um, the immigrant community and and right. Yeah. And and Palantir is a company i think that that is one of their sub companies that that is doing this um i am seriously considering it i wanted you know i heard the report yesterday just like you and i was i was shocked and i was really uh disappointed and i think that um we are you know we're gonna have to uh i'm i'm ready you know, yeah. I don't need Amazon Prime. I need, you know, I need people to have freedom and liberation and not be targeted by the government. Right. Yeah. So. It gets scary when they're the, the they're not even a billion, billion dollar. They're a, what is it? They're Godzillion, a, I think they trillion, cost the trillion dollars. Mega tr- yeah. yeah. I don't even yeah. know the right word for it anymore. Yeah. It's so much money. But when they're at that level, I mean, they yeah. own the government. They can own the government. They can own like, you know, yeah. anyway. Yeah. I don't understand why they actually need to engage in this business. Right. It's like they have plenty of other lucrative businesses. Now you want to, like, go after immigrants? It doesn't, yeah. Yeah. Um, John, do you have a last question before I ask the last, last question? Yeah, I want to hear your last one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you mentioned, you know, we need the movement. We need to build the movement and continue building the movement. So November 6th is very close, very near. Yes, right Um, around the corner. Or, you know, if you're watching the news at all, the the debates are happening. People are starting to report even early voting and it seems record-ish. People are turning out to vote. And so for for you um, and the organization, I mean, we don't want to feel too excited, but what would it mean if we were able to take back Congress? Would it make a, a huge difference in the movement? Yeah, I mean, I think if Congress had people who were able to stop or do oversight over the administration, you know, if they had the power to do that right now, um, people who are in power don't want to do that. Um, it would make a huge difference because uh, they could, I mean, obviously, if you know, the Senate right now is confirming very conservative judges. These are people who we're stuck with for life. These federal district court or appeals court, and not just the Supreme Court. These are lifetime appointments. And um, so we'll be paying the price for this for a really long time. If we had people in the Senate who cared more about having fair judges, make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, on the House side, they do oversight on all these agencies, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, the uh, Department of Justice. Um, now, you know, some things they can stop and some things they can't, but they can definitely hold accountable and ask for transparency. Again, not to go back to Rick Wilson, but he was asked kind of what would happen if right. you know, the House flips and he expects it to. Um, he said, you know, don't don't bother with impeachment you know it's not going to go yeah. anywhere in the senate mm-hmm. death of a thousand cuts and it's exactly that it's right. obviously investigations but it's hearings and, and right. calling these people on the carpet right. and regularly making them cough up information and all right. that kind of stuff that he thought would a trip up the trump administration and, and obsess them but b is the best thing you can do or at least the most effective thing you can do with trying to get some sunlight into what's going on. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, that's what a lot of the lawsuits are about, yeah. you know, but Congress has, um, 
you know, with Congress or with the House doing that too, I think it would help a lot. Yeah. Artie, thank you so much for sharing My you pleasure. and your time here with us at the Commonwealth Club. Um, and I, I can't thank you enough. We can't thank you enough. The world can't thank you enough for doing the work that you do with a, a great group, it sounds like. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Artie Coley, Executive Director of Asian Law Caucus. Please support the organization and everything that they do. And uh, we'll see you next time. The Michelle Miao Show is here at the Commonwealth Club every Thursday at noon-ish. But check the website <laughs> for specific dates as we head into the holidays. We have some great programs um, coming up, but the dates have changed a little bit. Uh, we're, we, we're going to do a discussion on the state of trans violence and how that impacts trans women in, in the uh, POC space, uh, particularly black uh, trans women. And then we're also going to do a talk on the 40th anniversary of Prop 8 or Briggs Initiative and just looking back. What did we do right? How did we how did we defeat a bill like that during a time in which it was very different, very anti-LGBTQ, uh, and and so much more. For everything else, you can head to michellemiao.com. This program will air on the Progressive Voices Network at 4 o'clock, and we'll share that with Artie so that you could share it with your members. And thanks again. Thanks to all of you who came today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> the, the clap always